0: Welcome to the neural network. I'm Nick. I'm a neuroscientist, neurophysiologist out at the Center for Integrative Brain Research at Seattle Children's. So, in the last episode, we talked a bit about the respiratory system and the different components that go into making you breathe the way that you breathe at any given time. And so, there's really three main components of the respiratory network. Uh, That's a controller, and you have a set of sensors, and you have a set of effectors. And so, basically, your controller. Um, is a series of neural circuits within your brain, primarily your brainstem, that create an oscillatory rhythm that signal down to the muscles of respiration in order to take a breath. Your effectors then are those actual muscles that move the air, and so they, uh, they create different pressures within your chest wall cavity in order to bring air in and to push air back out. And then you have your set of sensors, which fine-tunes the system and gives signals into the controller as to whether or not it needs to breathe more or less based on the amount of CO2 and oxygen within the body. Now, when we talk about the controller itself and how it creates these rhythmic oscillations uh, that signal to the effectors when to breathe, we usually say that this rhythm is an emergent property of the network. And so an emergent property is just a property that comes about, in this case, in a neural network, that can't be explained by any single component of the network. And so basically, if we have all of these neurons that create these rhythmic whooshes, you know, these rhythmic neural signals, if we take any single neuron out and we study it, we can't explain the behavior of the network as a whole. And so we say that the the rhythmic or the rhythmogenesis of the network is an emergent property. Now, that being said, there's a a few debated theories as to how this rhythm comes to be throughout the network, and they are very heatedly debated throughout the field. Now, in order to study the entire respiratory control network, there's many different preparations that can be used. So there's in vitro preparations that are brains in in a dish and brains in in a bath, and there's in vivo preparations, which are the actual whole animal. Uh, whether it's a lot or awake or anesthetized, and there's in silico preparations which are modeling, uh, computer-based modeling simulations of the network, and then there's there's some other preparations as well. There's an in block preparation is what it's called. There's also a working heart brainstem preparation, which is like a like a zombie mouse looking thing, um, and so there's a bunch of different preparations. But regardless. Each of the preparations has its own advantages and disadvantages, but the preparation that you pick to study is usually based around what the question is that you're actually trying to answer. So if you're trying to answer how a single neuron within the respiratory control network creates oscillatory rhythms, then it's likely most appropriate to use an in vitro preparation in order to study that single neuron because it's going to be hard to get to in the other preparations. Conversely, if you want to understand how a certain drug or a certain perturbation or into the respiratory control network actually changes breathing, well then you probably should have the whole animal that's actually breathing. And so then you'll opt for like an in vivo type of thing. So it's dealer's choice really for which preparation is going to be used, but it's worth understanding the advantages and the disadvantages of each preparation when you look at the evidence that's being put forth by the studies that are created using each of the individual preparations. All right, so what I wanted to talk about then in this episode was a bit more of the behavioral applications of respiration, or I guess you could say the controversial-ish stuff that that comes up. And it certainly gained uh, a bit of traction within different media sources about controlling our breathing and doing mindfulness breathing. And I think a, a lot of it, at least in my opinion, started to come to light when there was this push for, quote, you know, biohackers to try to understand how utilizing different physiological systems can affect our our mind and our performance and all that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to talk about things like breath work and belly breathing and breathing to regulate consciousness and all that sort of stuff. So before we talk about each topic individually, I think it's very important to understand a single principle. And that principle is your respiratory system. Your respiratory control system works pretty darn good all by itself. So while our brain has imbued us with the neat ability to switch to manual breathing every once in a while, you don't necessarily need to do that. Because in the in the absence of disease process, I should say, your respiratory system, I'll repeat it, works pretty darn good by itself you take like nearly a billion breaths throughout your life without ever having to think about it the average human breathes like 12 to 15 breaths a minute and so you can do the math for how much that comes out to with the average lifespan but it's a lot of breaths that are taken throughout your life that you don't have to think about now that being said you can take over And start to manually breathe if you want. If you choose to take a breath in, you choose to take a breath out. You choose to take how uh, you choose the size of the breath. How much air do you want to breathe in? How much air do you want to breathe out? How long do you want to hold your breath? You have that ability. Sometimes I question why the respiratory control network or why the higher orders of consciousness gave us the ability to do that. But nonetheless, the ability is there, which is fascinating because that's not the case for a lot of other physiological processes. If you want, you can't just necessarily increase your blood pressure, you can't just necessarily change your heart rate. I mean, you you can get yourself worked up and be anxious and that changes your your heart rate and your blood pressure, that's for sure. Or you can talk to um some coworkers about things and then certainly your blood pressure can change then, that's for ding. That's for sure. Um but that being said, Uh, The respiratory system does have a bit of a unique ability. And so I like to think of it kind of like a slapstick shifter in a car. So in cars that have slap slap shift shifters, that's tongue twister, um, it's an automatic transmission, right? So the car will shift by itself. But if you want, you can shift that bad boy into sport mode or into slapstick mode. And you can have a little bit of control over when it actually shifts. But it comes with its own limits, right? If you mess it up and you forget to shift, it'll do it by itself, okay? There are are safety fail mechanisms that are built in, and similar with the respiratory control network. Like, yeah, you can breathe by yourself, but if you decide to just start breathing like crazy and you hyperventilate, you'll pass out and the controller will take over, and do its own thing without you having to think about it. So it's basically, you start to mess it up, it'll revoke your manual breathing privileges and do it on its own. So while we think that we have full control, we don't really have full control. We just have like training wheels on whenever we choose to manually breathe. Okay, so similar to, like I said, like a slapstick shifter in a car, if you choose to manually breathe, you might be able to perhaps increase the performance of your body, let's say, um but at the same time you also increase the risk of screwing it up. Now thankfully, if you screw it up by manually breathing, there's not huge consequences cuz like I said you'll just usually pass out and then it'll take over and do its own thing without you messing it up. But of course, if you choose to hold your breath too long, uh that can be bad as well. Um so depends on uh, your will, I guess. How strong your will is to override the autonomic control of respiration. And this principle extends not just to the respiratory control network, but I think it's important to, to put out there that your brain in general is pretty good at functioning on its own. And so if you hear things that say that you need to increase your dopamine or you need to increase your norepinephrine or you need to change your serotonin levels in your head, the question becomes why? Okay, because the way that your brain is functioning right now with the amount of dopamine and norepinephrine and serotonin and acetylcholine and glutamate and all those sort of neuromodulators, the way that it's working is working pretty good, and it's keeping you alive at the moment. And so by just saying that we need to increase certain neuromodulators in order to give us some sort of elixir of health, wealth and fortune can sometimes come at a cost. And so just a, a disclaimer before... You run off to the nutrition store and you decide that you need to increase your dopamine in your head because you heard that it is responsible for pleasure and reward and motivation. And so you grab some tyrosine tablets because it's the uh, amino acid that is what dopamine is, is made from. Just remember that sometimes more is not always good in the brain. Okay. More neuromodulators is not always good. Less neuromodulators is not always good. Having the right amount of neuromodulators, given the right circumstances, is good. And amazingly, your brain is pretty good at regulating how many neuromodulators you have in your head at any given time relative to what it needs. So that's just a basic disclaimer. That being said, I wanted to talk a little bit about the suprapontine respiratory activity, as it's sometimes called, or your cortical rhythms of respiration or uh, conscious control of, of breathing. So breathing in higher order centers above the brainstem, so everything north of the brainstem up into your skull. So in general, when we talk about the brain regions that are, that are north of the brainstem, this would be like when you think about, just if I say picture a brain, this is sort of that the region that you're going to think of, this f- wrinkly looking thing that's, that's underneath your skull. A lot of this is where your higher order cognitive abilities come from, right? And what's interesting is that almost everywhere within the higher order centers of the brain, you can measure a respiratory rhythm. And so if you take like these multi-electrode array recording probes and you stick them in different areas of the brain, or if you look at brain activity across different areas using EEG or electroencephalography, then you can abstract a respiratory rhythm from all different regions of your brain at all different times. And so it brings into question, you know, how is it or why is it that the entire brain— is essentially given this background noise of respiration. Clearly, there must be something important about it. But the question always becomes is whether or not this activity can actually influence the other regions of the brain, or is it you know, some sort of just background noise, if you will, that's being signaled to the other areas of the brain? And how does it actually do this? And if we change our breathing, can we actually change the other brain rhythms that are going through the different areas of the brain? So when I talk about uh, brain activity or your brain waves, so you, you might have heard that this X, Y, or Z can change your brain wave activity if you listen to a certain sound or you smell a certain smell or you think of a certain thought that it might be able to influence the, the brain waves and these are like our delta waves or theta waves alpha waves beta waves and gamma waves um, and then of course it's gotten to be much deeper than that but those are sort of our basic brain waves and so ba- when, when you measure brain activity that's coming from you know in this case the cortex You have a bunch of neurons and astrocytes and all that kind of stuff that are creating these little electrical discharges like we talked about in the brainstem. And when you listen to all of their activities together, you start to get this overall sense of what's happening within a brain region. And so basically, if you are standing on top of a building overlooking a very busy crosswalk, you don't necessarily hear... An individual conversation that's happening between two people at any given time, you know, in that busy road. However, you do hear this sort of overlying or overarching noise that is coming from the entire crowd. And so when we're measuring this overall brainwave activity, this is essentially what we're looking at, is what is the overall noise that's coming, or what is the overall activity that's coming from all of these different neurons that are having their own conversations at any given time, and so that's what gives you know these like, like EEG traces, for example. Great. So so we stick on like these EEGs uh, and we get a recording of different areas of the brain, and so basically if you're just looking at a graph and then you have this this line that's going across a page. Uh, over time. And it just keeps going across as we continue to to measure the output. And this line isn't just straight, right? And so, because like I said, there's, there's different neurons that are underneath where we're measuring, and they're having their own little conversations. And so they're all going to cause these little blips on the line. Um, and so it almost looks like the thing's vibrating, because there's a lot of things going on at one time. And depending on how high each of these blips are uh, in the trace. So the trace goes up and it goes down and it goes up and it goes down. Um, And depending on how fast the up-downs occur within the trace, dictate whether or not the brain is in, or if the brain is expressing, let's say, delta waves or theta waves or et cetera. And so like delta waves, for example, are are like one to four hertz, which just means that there's one to four up-downs on that trace per second. Theta waves are 4 to 8 hertz. Alpha waves are 8 to 12 hertz. Beta waves are usually like 13 to 30 hertz. And then gamma waves are 30 to 150 hertz roughly. And there's low gamma waves and high gamma waves. And so depending on the region that you're measuring, each region of the brain at any given time can be expressing different brain regions or can be expressing different brain waves. And, of course, the size of the area that you're measuring can also influence what waves are being measured at any given time. But the interesting thing is that each of these brain waves are contributing to the overall recording from the brain at the same time. And so at some times, let's say delta waves or theta waves are dominating the overall activity that's measured. But There's also alpha, beta, gamma, and all these other different brainwaves happening at the same time. And so basically, you can think of having a bunch of different traces, and they're all smashed together to give you the overall activity of the brain. And so there's different mathematical ways to separate out the relative contribution of each of those waves to the overall measured activity. And I'm not even going to pretend Like I understand the mathematics that go into that. However, you don't necessarily need to just to understand the principle that at any given time, the brain is producing all of these different waves, but which one is dominating at any given time is theorized to perhaps have an overall effect on our behavior. So let's say that when we're measuring the overall activity of the brain and we see that there's a predominant or there's a domination by delta waves, is occurring within the recording. This is said that you know we're typically in deep sleep or we have a loss of body awareness. Uh, if theta waves are starting to dominate the trace, then we have uh, states of reduced consciousness, perhaps light sleep or, or like a REM-ish type of sleep. If alpha waves are dominating, um, it's said that you're relaxed but you're awake. If beta waves are, are dominating the, the activity, then uh, we're awake and normally alert. Um, and then if gamma waves are starting to dominate the trace, then perhaps we have a heightened sense of, of perception or uh, we have a heightened awareness, acuity, that kind of thing. And so, you know, when you when you go and look up in YouTube and it says like alpha waves or beta wave rhythms or something like that, these are these are the idea is that, you know, these sounds that you're listening to that are coming from this video somehow influence the brain to shift it towards a state that's dominating alpha waves or beta waves or, or, or whatever it is that you're you're trying to get your brain into. So then the question becomes, is if all of these different brain rhythms are influenced by different inputs, whether it be from the YouTube video that you're looking at or whether it be from meditation or whatever, is does breathing itself contribute to modulating these rhythms and so humans like i said they we only breathe roughly like 12 breaths per minute so that's only that's only 0.2 hertz and so that's much lower than the frequency of the major brain waves that we typically measure and so for a long time it was just thought that the the breathing rhythm or this 0.2 hertz underlying rhythm was just noise that was filtered out by the brain. But what we're starting to understand through different, what we call um, basically like coherence methods or understanding how different rhythms sync up with one another, we're starting to find um, in different studies, if you look it up, is that the different brain waves, those delta, theta, alpha, beta, gamma brain waves seem to be influenced in a sense By this underlying breathing rhythm. And so the predominance of one of the different rhythms seems to be phase dependent with breathing. And so basically, during inspiration or during expiration, certain rhythms tend to predominate in the brain. And so, you know, a a quote from one of the papers that I was looking up for this said that. I'll just read it here. The entrainment of both slow and fast neural oscillations has been shown to enable neuronal coherence. Breathing has been suggested to exert its system-wide effects in an analogous manner. The slower respiratory rhythm is coupled to faster cortical rhythms, which facilitate long-distance brain synchronization. Both direct and indirect pathways are likely to mediate the processes or the process modulating cortical activity in different ways. The rate, phase, type of breathing are all factors which should be considered when discussing them mechanisms underlying respiratory cortical interactions Uh, and this was from keeping the breath in mind respiration or oscillations and the free energy principle by oh i'm not even going to come close to pronouncing this right Asina boyadiva boy there's a lot of letters i can't get that right um anyways i'll post the paper in the the show notes so essentially what it's saying is that your breathing and your rate of breathing and the way that you're breathing can influence, and it has been shown to influence, the activity of the different brain waves uh, within our higher order centers of the brain. So then the question becomes: Is how exactly does it do it? Like how does how does your breathing actually influence the other regions of the brain? And that's still an ongoing question to this day. There's not necessarily a good answer to how breathing—that you know—the neural signals that are originating down in the brainstem actually influence the higher order cognitive centers, or not even cognitive centers, just higher order centers of the the, cere- the, the cortex. Um, and so, the first, I guess, simplest question that could be asked is where do the respiratory centers of the brainstem actually, in the pons, where do they actually connect or do they have connections, direct connections to the other areas of the cortex? And so basically are uh, the neurons within the brainstem and the pons that are responsible for creating and controlling this respiration, do they send their little axons or their little tentacles up to the different areas of the cortex in order to have direct communication with them and these can either be monosynaptic projections meaning that there's a direct link or there's a direct tracing of a neuron within the respiratory control centers that actually traces all the way up uh, into the areas of the brain and they have one synapse and so that just synaps- synapses right onto that region of the brain there's also indirect connections, or these polysynaptic connections, where let's say that you have a neuron of you know the pre-Botzinger complex, or this region that controls um, the rhythmic output from the brain, it goes to a certain other region, and then uh, that neuron that it communicates to then sends its own projection, so it's kind of playing telephone up to the higher order centers of the brain. So that, that's one region. And and there's been a, an elegant study um, done by, I believe, Cindy Yang and, and Feldman's group, again, uh, where they outlined a lot of the different monosynaptic projections um, of the pre complex neurons or the controller neurons. Where do they project up to within the cortical regions of the brain? And so I'll just read the... Summary here, I guess, from one of the figures, figure five. So says, summary of the projection profiles of SST positive and Gly T2 pos- positive pre-Botzinger complex neurons. So basically, the, the neurons within the pre-Botzinger complex, um, we need a way in order to label them. Uh, like, what, what actually makes these neurons within this region unique? Um, And and how do you identify them? And one of the ways is to use different markers based on different neurotransmitters or neuromodulators that they produce. And so the the neurons within this region of the brain, um, a lot of them express this uh, somatostatin, uh, which is a neuromodulator. And so if you uh, label the cells within this region... Within this region, that then you'll find that a lot of them um, express the somatostatin, so that's what it means by SSD positive. So somatostatin expressing neurons within this region, and it also says T two, which is a marker that's used to um, label. Glycinergic cells. So the SST cells are are theoretically excitatory and the glycinergic cells are theoretically inhibitory. So, where do they project to for higher order brain regions? And so it says that the projections from higher order brain regions may provide volitional and emotional control of breathing. And so it projects to areas such as the arcuate nucleus, the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, the Botzinger complex, the central amygdala, the dorsal media hypothalamus, the collicular fusae lateral hypothalamus, medial preoptic area, nucleus of the solitary tract, the periaqueductal gray, periventricular hypothalamus, parabrachial nuclei, parafacial nuclei, red nucleus, superior colliculi, substantia nigra, facial nucleus, ventral respiratory group, hypoglossal nucleus, and the zona inserta. So regardless, you don't necessarily need to, I don't even know what half of those brain regions do, but that's not the point. The point is, is that there are direct projections going from the pre complex to the different higher order areas of cognition. Just meaning that there are, there is a direct projection for neurons that control our breathing to influence the function of the areas in our brain that control our higher order functions or our ability to be cognitive or conscious or these kind of things. So that's, Pretty cool. You know, I had one time I had uh this kind of wild, not really wild, hypothesis where I wanted to see if the actual physical movements of breathing influenced the brain activity. And and so I'll walk you through this hypothesis. And so basically every time that you take a breath, it's a lot of movement that happens, right? And actually one of the things that happens is that Every time that you breathe, you get a movement of the cerebrospinal fluid or this fluid that is encasing the majority of your brain. And so you move, it pulsates the cerebrospinal fluid, and so it creates this fluid movement. And some of the recent evidence in the literature actually was suggesting that some of the receptors that are widely expressed across a lot of different neurons uh, of the brain are what we call... Mechanosensitive to shear stress. And so basically, whenever the receptors that are sitting on a neuron have a shearing force that goes across from them, they activate, which allows ions to flow into the cell and it activates the cells. This can be induced by a shearing force. And so, my hypothesis was that every time that we take a breath, it's one of the major components for the movement of cerebrospinal fluid. And so we take a breath, it moves the cerebrospinal fluid, it creates flow. That flow then creates a shearing stress because the, the flow from the CSF obviously then would perhaps get transmitted down to the extracellular fluid that's encasing, I guess you could say, the, the neurons, and that creates a pressure gradient. That pressure gradient moves the extracellular fluid or it creates um, movement. That movement then would create a shearing stress onto the cells, which then could activate these excitatory receptors, um, and it could cause activation of the neurons. So it it would have been pretty easy to test, and I still want to test it. And and so basically, you just take a brain out, take a brainstem out, whatever part you want to take out, uh, and you put it in a circulating bath with CSF, and you can stick a probe in or a multi-electrode array recording probe in. Um, and you can record from different cells. And uh, we can use different techniques to label the ones that express this receptor that is sensitive to that shear stress. And we'll just pulsate the flow of the cerebrospinal fluid and see if it activates it. And then if we're lucky, then we can block the shear stress-sensitive receptors within the brain. And if it gets rid of the pulsating input then we can have some idea that perhaps some sort of movement of csf or pulsation of csf that could be coming from breathing might be contributing to the underlying background activation of the different neurons within these regions and you know this hypothesis originally was was shut down pretty fast uh as as a lot of hypotheses do and let this is I guess this is more of a venting thing in the scientific world but if you have a hypothesis and it's it hasn't been tested and it seems to be relatively backed up by information don't ever shoot down somebody's hypothesis because that's not that's not being a good scientist if if someone comes up to you with a hypothesis and they say, "Hey, this is exciting. I want to test x, y, and Z because I read these different papers and you say, "No, we're not testing that hypothesis why would you Why would you think the hypothesis is even true and it's like well, what are you doing like you're just crushing that person's scientific enthusiasm. Don't crush someone's hypothesis, especially." When you have the ability to test it and you can do it with without having to give up anything like we already have brains that are in a dish and we already have the means to test this and we're already going to have the probes in the right area. So all you got to do is pulsate the flow and add on a blocker like it's not that wild of an idea to test, but it just it was one of the things that grinds my gears is that other scientists and they do this all the time. Is that they'll just shut down a hypothesis and look at you like you've offended them for coming up with some scientific idea that may or may not actually turn out to be true. Even if your hypothesis is turns out to be wildly wrong, at least you've learned something more than you did before. You know, by just shutting someone down for coming up with it, all you're doing is just perpetuating this, this scientific bullying that, uh, you know, I used to think in undergrad and stuff like that and even in graduate school when you come up with these hypotheses and you just get shut down right away you thought, okay well you know what? I probably just don't know something that I don't know and I should have not been an idiot and said this hypothesis but all it does is it' just like silences your scientific enthusiasm and then you get done and you start to create your own scientific projects and create your own scientific hypotheses and you think, wait a minute. Like, I can come up with any hypothesis that I want, and you can come up with any hypothesis that you want. And all you have to do is figure out a way to test it. So that's just sort of a rant uh, into the, the ins and outs of academic research, but just wanted to to put that little rant out there. Okay, so enough with that, the sidetracking into that. Basically, that was my hypothesis of something that could also contribute to this underlying neural rhythm. Uh, we haven't tested it, but... Hopefully at some point I'll we'll be able to test it just just to see. Great. so we have direct ish or indirect um, connections that go from the pre botzinger complex or this controller up into the the higher order brain regions. There's also um, some sensory based input, I guess you could say. so basically when you like when you breathe through your nose, it activates the olfactory bulb. And so this olfactory bulb relays information about things that are going on in your nose. And so as air is whooshing past the olfactory bulb as you're breathing in, it's giving a signal to the other areas of the brain. And, of course, this signal is then oscillatory because as you breathe in and you breathe out, the amount of activation of the olfactory bulb is going to be related to when the air is actually moving in and moving out. And so when it activates certain other areas within the brain that it That it connects to it's going to activate these at the same rate as your breathing and so this could be an interesting thing to follow up to find out you know why like what's actually so special about nasal breathing for example because some people you know tout the the elixir of life is hidden within our ability to breathe through our nose and good luck if you have any septal problems but but basically when you breathe through your nose, you're going to get that olfactory bulb activation of the different brain regions, but when you breathe through your mouth, that's not going to occur. And so, you know, who knows? There could be something behind the fact that uh, nasal breathing is actually, turns out to be a little bit more of a dynamic neural process that involves more regions of the brain compared to just mouth breathing. So that's something that, that, that's kind of interesting. Another way that we can get activation of certain brain regions uh, or different nerves, I guess you could say in this case, another way that we get activation of them in relation to our breathing uh, comes through vagal nerve activation. And I know anyone in this space has probably heard that changing the activity of your vagus nerve is the way in which we live forever, but at the end of the day, the vagus nerve, which is one of our cranial nerves, innervates many of the areas that are involved with breathing. It also innervates a lot of areas of digestion and stuff like that. And so every time that we take a breath, you're activating the vagus nerve. And so, and, and, and of course, the the size of the breath is going to be proportionally related to how much vagal nerve activation that you actually get. So then, of course... A lot of what is what is touted, I guess, that you can see in different articles, is that if we take slow and we take deep breaths, um, that we can increase the activation of our vagus nerve to calm you down. And and um, this is actually one of the questions that came up. Probably one of the one of the questions that came up almost the most within the live discussion groups of the neural network is understanding how. Taking slow, deep breaths modulates our vagal nerve activity in order to change our behavior. So, the vagus nerve, like I said, is a, a it's a cranial nerve, uh, and it's there's evidence to show that it largely influences our our quote parasympathetic like activity. So, basically, the central nervous system. Some people say that it's split into a sympathetic and a parasympathetic nervous system. So, our sympathetic nervous system being that fight-or-flight mechanisms, making us, uh, you know, if you're getting chased by a bear, then you have a sympathetic activation, uh, whereas if you're just laying on the couch being relaxed, we say that it's a parasympathetic activation. So parasympathetic being um, our slud activities, salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, and digestion. So anything that promotes these activities would be thought to be promoting the activity of the parasympathetic nervous system. In all reality, it's... You, you you don't have activation of one over the one or the other there are mechanisms that are largely categorized as sympathetic like and there are mechanisms that are largely characterized as parasympathetic like and at any given time they're both active it's just a matter of which one is necessarily having more influence and so if your heart rate is you know starting to go down you're reducing your blood pressure you're relaxing the quote parasympathetic mechanisms within your nervous system are predominating Versus, again, if you're getting chased by a bear, then your sympathetic activities are predominating because you don't necessarily need to worry about digestion and salivation when you're getting away from this bear. You need blood flow going to your muscles, and you need to be very highly acute. So back to the vagus nerve. The the vagus nerve, activation of the vagus nerve has been largely correlated with parasympathetic-like activity and so calming type of activity. However, it's also providing sensory information, so going from the body to the brain, and it transmits information about the state of our airways, how much our chest wall is expanding, information about our abdominal situation, et cetera. And and so every time that we take a breath, we're activating the vagus nerve because we're expanding our chest wall. And this has been implicated in a reflex that we have called the Herring-Broyer reflex. And so what the Herring-Broyer reflex is, is essentially as you inflate your lungs, you're expanding your chest wall, it starts to activate your vagus nerve more and more as you're taking the breath in. And so when you're at the end of your inspiration, the activation of the vagus nerve is quite a lot compared to when you don't have any air in your lungs. And it gets to a point where it contributes enough to seize respiration that you theoretically stop taking a breath. And it's thought of to be in place to prevent uh, what we call barotrauma or um, trauma to the lungs as a result of of too much air in there, Um, which is one of the things that needs to be worried about a lot with patients that are on ventilators. Um, So ventilator-induced barotrauma is a real thing. Um, and it's one of the things so uh, that needs to be kept in mind when determining how much air is going to go into every breath when a patient is on a ventilator. Um, so that's what's basically called the herring broil reflex. And it's interesting in, in the lab, actually, because when you do a vagotomy or you cut the vagus nerve, uh, what happens immediately is suddenly the animal starts taking huge, slow breaths. Because theoretically, it's lost a lot of that communication between the chest wall and the brain. And so it no longer knows how much air is going into the lungs. And so immediately when you cut the vagus nerve, um, that's when the animal just starts taking this big, slow breaths. And, you know, if you're trying to isolate um, the carotid artery, which is the vagus nerve is going right along the carotid artery. Sometimes if you're going to isolate the carotid artery... um, especially in mice and stuff, it, it's hard to see, uh, the vagus nerve at points because it's a mouse, whereas like in a goat, you can almost grab it with your hand. But, um, if you accidentally nick the vagus nerve or if there's pressure on the vagus nerve, as you're isolating the carotid artery, you'll know very fast because all of a sudden the animals start taking these really slow, deep breaths. So it's, it's, it's actually kind of cool. So then, when we look at integrating this vagal nerve activation into our behavioral states or our conscious states, one of the theories is that by taking slow, deep breaths, you get greater activation of the vagus nerve. and when you activate your vagus nerve, it puts you in a state of calming um, because you're you're activating these parts of the parasympathetic nervous system because the vagus nerve carries a lot of the Uh, motor information about activating parasympathetic-like activity. And it's certainly a hypothesis that's been around for a long time, and it's something that comes up a lot. But my reservation to it, I guess, has to do with relating the breathing activity to the vagus nerve activation and then the behavior. And and, And what I mean by that... Is even though that you're activating your, quote, parasympathetic nervous system when you're taking your deep breath in by activating the vagus nerve, what's often, I guess, forgot, or that, I guess, I don't know, the information has just been thrown to the wayside because it makes it too complicated, is that every time that you take a breath in, you also get huge activation of your sympathetic nerves, in conjunction with the activation of your vagus nerve, and so when we split up respiration, and we look up when we, and we look at the phases of breathing. Basically, you have um, you know, this pre-inspiratory period, then you have where you have these neural activities that are ramping up in order to get that activation of the whoosh um, coming from the controller to activate your breathing. Then you have inspiration, which is where the air is actually coming into your lungs. And during that inspiratory period, part of the way that we define you being in inspiration is that you have activation of the vagus nerve and the sympathetic nerves. And so you're having co-activation of parasympathetic and sympathetic activation. So just as we can say that taking these slow, deep breaths gives activation of our parasympathetic nervous system and it calms us down, and certainly if we market it and we say taking big, deep breaths calms us down. It can make it seem that way, but at the same time you're also getting just as much activation of your sympathetic nerves uh to put you in that fight or flight situation. So you know can activating the vagus nerve calm you down? Perhaps. Can breathing activate the vagus nerve? Yes. So there is likely a mechanism. However, breathing also at the same time activates your sympathetic nervous system which could completely negate any of the vagus activation as far as your overall brain activity state for your behavior. So that's the interesting thing there. I don't have the answer. I'm not sure that we have the answer and it's going to come down to a largely biased uh, opinion, depending on who you asked. Um, But that's just one of the objective ways to, I guess, look at how our breathing directly influences nerve activation to change our behavior. All right. So then, uh, moving on to our mindful breathing techniques, there's a, there's many different techniques that have been put out there, um, in order to change the way that we're breathing in order to relax us or to calm us down. And so sometimes it's called mindful breathing or other people call it meditative breathing practices, but essentially from what i can tell the basis of these different breathing techniques is to somehow get you know alpha brain activity alpha wave brain activity to to dominate the majority of the waves that are coming from within the brain and whenever we have alpha wave activity dominating then we largely correlate that with the person being in a relatively relaxed kind of state and we certainly talked about how Uh, the underlying breathing rhythm may be able to influence the brain waves that are are coming out. And actually, some of the papers that we're talking about had suggested that perhaps the neuronal mechanisms that are linking the respiratory centers to the, the higher order centers of the cortex may be able to more specifically change the alpha and the gamma brain waves that are coming from there um it's it's not a perfect i guess you could say interpretation of the research into the human state but basically there was um a state there was a study uh where they were looking at how the cortical phase activity basically um across different brain waves can be modulated by breathing and the region that was looked at at least in this in this study which I'll I'll list in the the show notes I'm just uh let me see what the name of the author actually was. Uh Ito, Ito et al. 2014. All right, so that was showing respiratory modulation of the power of gamma frequency oscillations. This was looking in the the mouse whisker barrel cortex. So of course, we don't necessarily have a whisker barrel cortex as far as I'm aware. But I might be wrong on that, so don't quote me. But basically, a a barrel cortex is in the somatosensory cortex um, in rodents, as far as I'm aware. And I'm just going to stop right there uh, because that's about all I know about the whisker barrel cortex. It has to do something with activation of the whiskers, I'm guessing. But I'm not even going to pretend like I know what a whisker barrel cortex does. Anyways, uh, that's where they were measuring these different neuronal oscillations, and they were finding that the breathing rhythm can modulate uh, different gamma, the power of different gamma oscillations. So basically how much that those gamma brain activities dominate the overall activity within the brain. Uh, Okay, so back to then the mindful breathing. So how is it that changing our breathing actually... Changes our, our brain activity or our, be, our behavior, I guess you could say. And so the different med- meditative breathing practices have been implemented through many like yogic type of, of breathing practices. And there's different techniques that are used. Some One of the most common is the square or the box breathing technique, where you take a breath in for four seconds, hold it for four seconds. Breathe out for four seconds, and then you hold it for four seconds. So in four, hold four, out four, hold four. Rolls right off the tongue. Another one is, uh, I was just looking these up, uh, a four, seven, eight technique. So you empty the lungs of your air. You breathe in quietly through the nose for four seconds. You hold your breath for seven seconds. It's not trivial. Exhale forcefully through the mouth, pursing the lips, and making a whoosh sound for eight seconds repeat the cycle up to four times. And if you do it on public transportation, you can probably get your own seat as well. Uh, there's a 3-6 technique in 3-out-6. Okay, I'm just going to say like there's, there's different ways that you can breathe in for a certain amount of time. You can hold your breath for a certain amount of time. You can exhale for a certain amount of time and you can make whoosh sounds if you want. At the end of the day, you are being cognate Of your breathing, you're being aware of your breathing practice. So, can these different brain or can these different breathing patterns affect your brain rhythms? Sure, maybe. I mean, some of the evidence is suggesting that perhaps they increase alpha wave activity, especially with the the square breathing. And will it have the effect that you're looking for to be more calm and less anxious? Maybe. Uh, The question is whether these techniques are necessary or sufficient in order to induce the behavior. And what I mean by that is that is changing the way that you breathe sufficient to induce an alpha brain state that then causes you to be calm? Maybe. It's a big maybe. I don't think we know at this point. But if it works... And if doing this square breathing technique or this four, seven, eight, or three, six or whatever you want to use, if it does calm you down, then who cares if it's inducing some alpha wave activity within your brain? If it works, then then do it. Right? We don't have to say that having alpha brainwave activity that comes from breathing is necessary in order for breathing to calm you down. Right? I'm, we're not saying, or I guess I'm not saying that it's nece- that these techniques are necessary in order to induce the calming pattern. If if being more cognate of your breathing or being aware of how you're breathing gets your mind off of whatever it is that's causing you anxiety, then great. It's calming you down. It doesn't mean that it necessarily has to be breathing. Who knows? It, these studies are hard to control for. You know, if you just focus on doing a task that is very highly um, attention oriented, then perhaps that could also take your mind off of whatever is calling causing you anxiety, and it could calm you down as well, right? And so, I don't know necessarily if it's just from being aware, being more aware of what you're doing, and focusing on something other than the thing that's giving anxiety, or if it's an actual neural mechanism where changing the activity of these different brain regions or breathing in through the nose to activate the olfactory bulb and the other areas that it innervates or changing your breathing activity activates your vagus nerve in such a way that you can influence the brain activity to give you alpha wave dominated activity throughout the brain. You know, who knows? It could be, and it'd be kind of interesting to see if that was the case. But regardless of the fact, if they work, do it. If it doesn't work, and doing meditative breathing practices stresses you out, or doing this weird 478 technique and making these loud, pursing whoosh sounds out in public makes you hypersensitive of your awareness or hypersensitive of your surrounding and it makes you embarrassed. Well, then it's probably not going to calm you down. So, if breathing that way calms you down, then do it. If it doesn't, then don't. Is it due to the necessary activation of the brain region, who knows. It could also be due to things that we can't measure yet. Okay, so whenever we're trying to understand if these different breathing techniques change our brain activity or our alpha wave activity in such a way that that induces calmness, it's completely dependent on what we can measure like through EEG for example. But there's a lot of things that we can't measure yet, right? And just because we can't measure it doesn't mean that it's not true. You know, science is a method of being able to measure things reproducibly. But science doesn't enc- encompass yet all measurement techniques because we there's there's things that we can't measure yet. And so who knows? There might be something that we find out later, many years down the road, uh, that we didn't have a way to measure of right now that would account for how being mindful of your breathing actually changes your emotion be kind of cool but anyways that's sort of the the take on the mindful mindful breathing and look at that we're already uh, almost at an hour so what else was i gonna mention oh belly breathing listen when you're belly breathing and you're pushing out your belly you're not breathing through your belly you're still breathing from your diaphragm you're still using your inspiratory muscles your external intercostals that kind of stuff. You're not using your gut to breathe. You're just pursing your gut out and then you're breathing, but you're still using the same muscles as if you're quote chest breathing. Just wanted to say that. Okay. So I think that's a good place to wrap up our talk on breathing in the neuroscience behind breathing, how you breathe, why you breathe and why your breathing system is basically a slapstick transmission. So, thanks for listening into another episode of the Neuronetwork. network follow us on our website www.theneuronetwork.org uh, we have different links on there to research um, to the podcast of course a content a contact form for questions comments etc so that's it have a good week go forth do good science enjoy the holidays bye bye